Turn in our Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, page 958 in the Bibles there in front of you. Also be considering Hebrews 12, page 1008, as these passages speak to the matter of the keys of the kingdom. That being our focus tonight, Lord's Day 31 of the Catechism, page 883 in the back of your hymnals, if you want to follow along there. The truths of the faith, the essentials of the faith, what would we include? What do we find to be important Better yet, what does God declare to be important? What we see tonight is that he emphasizes the preaching of the word and Christian discipline. The writers of the catechism pick up on this. Christ has declared that this is foundational to the church. And this is not unique to him. This was true of the prophets of old. This was true of the apostles. We see it throughout that God, by His Spirit's leading, emphasizes upon us the importance of preaching and Christian discipline, and that for the opening and closing of the kingdom of heaven. Lord's Day 31 speaks of the importance of preaching and Christian discipline, the means by which God brings His own in, as well as the means by which He reveals unbelievers and hypocrites. The true believer not only professes faith, but then lives it out. We've been reminded in recent days in a very public way that there are those who declare themselves to be devout believers who hold nothing to, or hold, do not hold to the faith. And the leaders of the church declare them to be outside the church until they repent and hold to the teachings. And the response is then a vicious, well, no, I am devout. I have done what I should have done in raising my family. And yet this individual stands over against the teaching of the Word of God. And the church publicly has restated with great courage that unless this individual repents and turns from sin to the Lord, she is outside of the church. You see, merely declaring oneself devout doesn't make one so. Merely declaring oneself faithful doesn't make one so. That is measured by the standard of God's Word. And God speaks regularly throughout the Scriptures of that standard, lest we miss it. Preaching and Christian discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Unbelievers and hypocrites must be identified. They should be warned of judgment that unless they repent, they will endure eternity of unthinkable condemnation. The destiny of our souls is at stake in the preaching of the Word. 
few weeks ago, we looked at question and answer 81. I'm just going to review about who should come to the table. Question and answer 81, who is it that ought to come to the table? And we saw that organizational, that outline really of the catechisms there in question and answer 81, the sin salvation service uh, motif. Who should come? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. There is to be a knowledge of the greatness of our sin. But who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned, that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Where do we look for salvation? To Christ. The focus. The heart of the catechism. And then also those who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. That of service, response, Grateful obedience to God's gracious salvation in Christ. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. We saw that those who live ungodly lives show that they are unbelieving and should not be admitted. That's the next question. Should those be admitted to Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. The Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. And why? Because this is according to Christ and his apostles in keeping with God's word. The Lord calls his church officers to protect the church from error, to discipline those who willfully continue in sin, to uphold the honor of God, to maintain the holiness of the church, and to lead the sinner to repentance and restoration. When Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, he said to them, who do people say that I am? And we remember all of the responses. Some say this, others say that. But he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, uh, representing the apostles, said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. The word proclaimed, the preaching of the word. Who is Christ? He is son of God, come to save, to which Jesus pronounced blessing that this had been revealed to him, not by man, but by God. And he said, this is the word that is to go out. This is the word that will be used of God to bring people in, to open the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this in verse 19 of Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Speaking to the apostles and then to the leaders of the church. And then we come to Lord's Day 31. I want to read those questions and answers. Question 83, 84, and 85. Question 83, what are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Question 84, how does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise and true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. 
The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Question 85, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ. Those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions. Such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. The sin of impenitence and unbelief keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven. The command is given to all people everywhere to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. For the restoration of that relationship between God and man, there is one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we find salvation. The true believer knows his or her need of that Savior and wants to gather whenever that gospel is proclaimed. The true believer knows that he or she needs to be nourished by the sacraments which God has ordained and wants to be gathered whenever Lord's Supper is administered, wants to see the promise once again set before us in picture in baptism to covenant children. Well, we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tonight. We've looked at this passage in connection with previous Lord's Days. I want to look again at this congregation, at this body of believers, which, as we have noted, was dealing with many problems. There were divisions, there were factions, there were moral and ethical problems There were issues surrounding marriage and divorce, as we've noted in weeks past, food offered to idols, indeed, disorder in worship. And though Paul commended them for remembering him, as we saw in chapter 11, verse 2, he nevertheless had stern words for them because they were living in defiance to God's commands. They were tolerating sin within the congregation that not even the pagans tolerated. And he said this should not be. We could look at numerous instances in this book where Paul speaks to the various issues, but I want to take us back to the 11th chapter, verse 17, particularly this matter of divisions as it was seen in the practice of worship and in the partaking of the sacrament. Verse 17 then, this being the word of God. But in the following instructions or the following order... I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is the word of God. Beloved and Lord, God has a perfect passion for the purity of the church for the holiness of his people, he will not allow individuals to despise his bride, his church. And that was what was happening here in the sins of division, faction, the the disorder in worship, among other things, in the Corinthian congregation. They were despising, they were profaning the church, they were bringing in their warped notions about who they were and how they could act uh, act in the church. God had given clear instructions as to how they were to worship, in particular here on the matter of the sacrament of Lord's Supper. How was it to be observed? How did it show the unity of the congregation, all one before the cross of Christ, remembering His body given and His blood shed? That particularly, although other matters in Corinth that He dealt with. And He gives clear warning about how the church would come under discipline if it did not heed his word. Indeed, it had come under discipline. God judges wickedness, and he was, in fact, judging the Corinthian church. We see that in verse 30. He speaks first off of how anyone who eats and drinks without discernment eats and drinks judgment. And then he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul urged the Corinthians to make right judgment, to be discerning, to be receptive to God's word, and to live in obedience to it. Not just that which they liked or that which made sense to them as important, but all that which God had declared Because all that he had declared was equally important. That is, in terms of obedience. They didn't get to choose to obey this and not that. He urged them to make right judgment. Verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. We would not have God's heavy hand upon us. In fact, God's heavy hand had come upon them, and why? Verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, we are led, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This discipline had a purpose of purification, of leading the people to live for the Lord and not be caught up in the ways 
and thinking and practices that the world was exhibiting. Hebrews chapter 12, we see the same, we we see this matter of discipline taken up once more. The writer of Hebrews is talking to those who want to go back to the old covenant, who want to go back to the sacrifices, who want to turn away from Christ and to follow these, these ways which were fulfilled in Christ. And instead of looking to Christ, they were looking to their own wisdom for their growth in the faith, for their practice. And therefore, the writer to the Hebrews in this sermon, which is what the book of Hebrews is, says this in Hebrews 12, verse 5, My sons, my daughters, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure or endure hardship as discipline, another translation puts it. God is treating you as sons, those who are inheritors. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share, in his, share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Everyone experiences discipline in life, but there are those who despise it and those who receive it for good. Those who despise it as cruel and unnecessary and those who receive it and see how God is directing and leading through those whom he has put over them. The Bible states the goodness of discipline. The writer of Hebrews is quoting here from Proverbs chapter 3, the sayings of Solomon. You can only imagine how little discipline the children of Solomon received from him. How could he discipline the children of a thousand women? There were lots of children likely receiving money from dad without receiving discipline from dad. In the days of the early church, at the time of the writing of this sermon to the Hebrews, in the days of the early church, many Roman nobles had illegitimate children by mistresses. Their only connection to their child was through financial support. The child truly had no discipline and was left to do whatever he or she wanted without punishment. This model, which the writer of Hebrews refers to, is not the model which God has given. He has ordained that children be raised by a father and mother, that they be disciplined by father and mother in keeping with the truth. Even Solomon recognized this, though he did not live up to this. We read several of his sayings in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline should be used to drive it far from him, Proverbs 22, 15. No doubt Solomon saw how undisciplined children turned out. 
Well, here, Paul, to the Corinthians, is speaking of matters which were not right, to which he was giving correction. Many of the uh, books of the New Testament are epistles, letters, and many of them are written by Paul. And in these epistles, what he's doing is declaring the commands of God and how the people are to live in response to those commands. There is much uh, in the New Testament to speak of how we are to obey the commands of God. Disobedience to God's teaching, to His commands, cannot be ignored. When Paul received word about what was going on in Corinth, he had to respond to what he heard. He could not be a faithful leader in the church, let alone a representative of Christ, if he refused to speak to these sins, to these blemishes in the bride of Christ. The Corinthians were gathering, but it was not for better, but for worse. When they got together, they couldn't agree on anything. There was division. There were factions. They didn't seek to serve each other. Instead of sharing together in fellowship and in worship, they spent their time in selfish indulgence, in argument and disputation. They quarreled, chapter 1 tells us. They were more focused on their standing in the church than their equal standing in Christ as believers. So Corinth gives us an example of a need for discipline. How is the preaching of the Word then opening and closing the kingdom of heaven? That's what we see secondly tonight. How is the preaching used to open and close the kingdom? Well, Paul reminds them that when he came to them, chapter 1 and chapter 2, that he preached the cross of Christ, that he preached Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That was the message that was to draw them to Christ, that they would find equal standing in Him, that they would rejoice together as a body acting as one with many different parts, living for God for the good of those around them. They were those who were to be boasting in the cross. For there is no boasting elsewhere. There is no boasting in ourselves. Paul says, I boast in nothing but the cross. Remember that hymn that we had in our blue psalter, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. That is where our boast is, and that removes all boasting in ourselves and in our actions. This message, this preaching of the gospel was very pointed in that it removed any confusion about how one was to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Paul stated it very clearly in the opening of this letter to deal with the sin of division, to deal with all sins. The writers of the catechism take up the teaching of John the Baptist in their footnote for answer 84. How does the preaching of the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? They refer to John 3, 31 to 36, where John the Baptist says this in verse 30, I must decrease, he must increase when speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there were people coming saying, this man Jesus is baptizing. What should we do? 
And John says, he is the one to whom we must look. I must decrease. He must increase. And the reality of the gospel very pointedly comes to those who are listening. John says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. There's the opening and the closing. Very clearly, the opening, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have life. If you do not, the wrath of God remains upon you. The kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise and true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. There's no confusion. There's no, there's no, there's no lack of clarity here. And it must be put that way. God wants it put that way. He says there will be offense when the gospel goes forth, but it must not be an offense that we add to the gospel because of the way we present it, because of the way we do it with a snarl, perhaps. No, we speak clearly, confident that God knows those who are his and that he will draw them to himself as the gospel is proclaimed clearly and that he will reveal those who are unbelievers and hypocrites as they reject the word. We saw in the preaching this morning those four parts. I'm not going to review them this this evening. Announcement, teaching, exhortation, and application. Those in Acts chapter 2, there's more that we could speak of regarding preaching, but it should contain those things. And as it does, God uses that word to inform, to inspire in the right understanding of that term, and then to send forth his people alive, dry bones receiving life. And the foundation of salvation is in the cross, the person and work of Christ. God's children gather and exalt Christ, not themselves. They come to be reminded of that truth those who create division and faction who refuse to heed the admonition of God's officers leave the officers no choice but to discipline them. They're charged to protect the church from those who would reject the gospel and who would seek to stir up difficulties. And we looked at that in weeks past to the examples, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, Judas Iscariot, of diatrophies and others in the Old and New Testament, those who stirred up trouble. People in Corinth were not, among other things, keeping the sacrament as instituted by Christ, which showed that they had no desire to submit to him. They were not making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace, as Paul says elsewhere, this created by the gospel. And Paul was obligated to speak sternly to them. To remind them in the preaching, to remind them that in Christ we all come together and we are to live together in the bond of peace and to go forth in service together, delighting in the grace and mercy of God in our lives.
The division among the Corinthians was a result of their failure to grasp the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings people from different walks of life, indeed from every walk of life, to a community of new life. The gospel isn't for some people and not others. It opens the way for whomever to come. One commentator notes that division in the church is one of the first and surest signs of spiritual sickness because it reveals that there is not a unity in Christ, but there is some other standard by which the body of believers, the body gathered, is functioning. Now, Paul knew that division could not be entirely avoided. He says in verses 18 and 19, there's division. I believe it in part. He wasn't going to take everything that he had heard. He wanted to investigate. But he says this, there are, there, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The presence of factions, the presence of disruption in the body of Christ ought to call forth the proclamation of the truth. That's what he's saying in these, in these words, in, these, in this, uh, this verse. He's saying that those who are approved, those who've been tested by the word, recognize error and are willing to speak to it and to point it out in love to those who would walk away from the truth. Paul said when error comes... It calls for action, for the church is to be protected. God's name is to be honored. And it often comes to the matter of discipline, where the catechism again speaks so eloquently. The, keys of, or the kingdom of heaven is closed and opened by Christian discipline according to the command of Christ. How? Those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives and who after repeated personal and loving admonitions refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Paul, in obedience to God's command to protect the flock, warned that those who did not keep to the truth were to be warned and then put out of the church so that the church might not be tempted by sin, which is is tolerated in its midst. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he gives example of this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, he speaks of Hymenaeus and Alexander, believing that it is connected to the church at Ephesus. There he says this, There are those who have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Stern words. Heavy words. What do they mean? Well, most commentators recognize this to mean that they are put out of the church, back into the world, the domain of Satan, that they might learn that they are not to take lightly God's word. That they are not to live unfaithfully. The church is called to stand in the truth, to defend the good deposit. Paul says elsewhere, and this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that he had 
to write stern words, and they were grieved by the letter that they received. Then he says this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repenting. That is the goal. That is the hope. That is the prayer. That in the exercise of discipline, they might be restored. The rest of of answer 85 says this. Those persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, those under discipline, are received again as members of Christ and of His church. That's what we desire. That's what we pray for. That's what we work for. The presence of the Spirit calls for a passion for holiness in the church and for difficult actions to be taken, for hard prayers to be prayed, for pleading prayers to be made. Paul prays for godly grief amongst the Corinthians, and God says this through His Word, godly grief produces what? When there is true grief, godly grief, it leads to repentance. That leads to salvation without regret. 2 Corinthians 7.10. We pray that those under discipline would be grieved by their sin and desire to turn to Christ who is ready to receive. These are hard matters for which we pray for those under discipline and those in position who must exercise that discipline. Failure to discipline the impenitent is a sign that there is a failure to love the glory of God, which is revealed in a concern for holiness. The genuineness of our faith is often tested by the presence of that which is out of step with the Word of God, and we are tested to see how we will respond. Paul says that in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 11, the, genuineness, uh, the genuine among you must be recognized when these factions come about that they would speak. My grandfather had a college ring that had a gemstone in it, and he used to say, this gem in my ring is a genuine synthetic ruby. It wasn't a real ruby. It had the appearance of a ruby, but it was a synthetic. It wasn't real. So often today in churches, we see those who want, we see churches that want the name, the the appearance of being a church without the genuineness of obedience to all that God calls for, which includes the faithful preaching of God's Word and the exercise of Christian discipline that we would not be genuine synthetic, genuine fakes, but that we, by God's grace, would be genuine believers, tested with a passion for God's name to be glorified. God often tests us to determine our commitment to His Word and our commitment to Him. We see it in our homes when we're disciplining our children, don't we? Ah, we can let that go. That's just going to, that'll pass. That's just the stage. 
so easy to do. One commentator writes that evil often helps manifest good. Trouble in the church creates a situation in which true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be revealed or manifested. If Christian discipline is applied and the individual refuses to respond rightly to it, no matter how devout they may declare themselves to be, there is a measure of self-deception, even apathy, which needs to be brought to us. We need it. We need it. If we are honest with ourselves, there are sins that we do not acknowledge that others need to point out. There are those who refuse to the point of walking away from the church where they are to be along with all believers. Paul was addressing the particular sin of division in Corinth, but the practice of Paul, however, can be applied to other sins and situations. Sin must not be allowed to go unpunished in the family of God, lest sinners be emboldened, lest they become apathetic to the call to holiness, lest the family of God bring shame upon God himself. Zacharias Ursinus, in his commentary on the catechism, which he wrote, has 17 reasons for why uh, we ought to exercise Christian discipline. In case we weren't fully convinced, he gives 17 reasons in keeping with Scripture Failure to appreciate God's holiness leads to a lack of concern for discipline. We must remember that our God is holy and calls us out to be a holy people. You are a holy people, a royal priesthood. That is not so we might become proud in ourselves. No, in fact, it is to to magnify God's glory in setting us apart for his glory, for his name, not for ours. To to be proud in that moniker, that title, simply shows that God's work still must be done in us. Rather, we must be humble, careful. Our hope in exercising discipline is that those disciplined will repent and be restored. The church cares for the glory of God, the soul of the sinner, in a way that it prevails over the difficulty of the process of discipline. Christian discipline exposes the hypocrite and the unbeliever and urges that one to consider his or her position before God. Discipline is a cry to the sinner to turn from sin, to be united meaningfully to the body of Christ. That's what we see as it is so succinctly put in answer 85. And Paul says... Though I was grieved for a time because you were grieved, yet now I rejoice. There was joy in their return. Godly grief had produced repentance. He says this, I saw what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness there was to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. There is a call for that change to be seen, to be evidenced. It's a mark of the Spirit's work. So part of our call as the church of Christ is to lift up prayers to God that His glory might be treasured here, that the souls of those who are presently under discipline here might repent and be restored, that God would be glorified by us in our words and in our lives. 
For apart from Christ, there is no hope for anyone. But in Him, there is salvation full and free. That is the call. To come. To submit to Him. To find forgiveness of sins. That God might be glorified. That the church might be that grace, spirit-filled ambassador. That the world would take note that the people of God have been with Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider these matters, the situations surrounding the topic of discipline are draining and emotional, having bearing upon your people and upon your officers. We pray for the elders in this church who exercise discipline, who exercise care over the flock. Grant them diligence. Lord, may your flock here receive them, giving obedience to you that their work might be a delight and not a burden. for those who are under discipline that we've heard this morning. We pray that you would work in them to see how concerned you are for them to submit to you. May we humbly examine our own hearts when we hear these steps taken that we would rightly examine ourselves, lest we eat and drink judgment to ourselves, lest we come presuming in worship. Lord, may we have an ear for your preaching, a heart for, a heart like yours. May we have a concern for holiness in our lives. May we receive teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training of your word that we might be equipped for every good work. For that is why you have given your word and your spirit. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.